Hello and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. It's March 25th, 2022. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. If you're like me and you get emails from Triathlete Magazine, follow numerous triathlon-related groups and pages on Facebook, and generally just browse a lot of triathlon-related content, then you will probably have come across an advertisement that the folks of TriDot, not to be confused with TriDoc, put, put out each year about this time. The way that this promotion is advertised, TriDot, claims to be looking for subjects to participate in a, quote, research project, end quote, on triathlon training. Now, in order to participate, candidates have to be training for at least an Olympic distance event or longer and agree to allow all of their data to be used by TriDot to, quote, improve their training algorithms, end quote. In return, selected participants receive two months of coaching for free. I've seen this promotion every year for the past few years, and being a scientist who does a podcast on endurance performance research, I thought this would be the year when I would ask some questions. What, I wondered, was TriDot actually researching? How were they dealing with consent? And since they were using human subjects for their research, were they conducting this research under the guidance of an IRB, or Institutional Review Board, as is mandated whenever human subject research is being performed? So I reached out to TriDot and asked these questions. In addition, I asked what their research questions were, and what their outcomes that they were measuring were, and whether or not they would be willing to share any of their findings. Unsurprisingly, I never really got a response. You see, this so-called research is really nothing more than yet another way to co-opt the scientific method for the sole purpose of marketing and sales of a product. TriDot, I believe, is being disingenuous with this research project ploy that is really nothing more than a marketing scheme to get new users in the door with the promise of two months of training for free, after which they no doubt put on a full-court press in order to convert those people into paying customers. Worst of all, during those two months, those people are having their personal training data harvested with questionable protections and unclear consent and no oversight so far as I can tell. And at the end of the day, who's actually benefiting? Well, certainly there will be some athletes who benefit from the coaching. But without a doubt, the real benefactors here is TriDot, who get all that data that would otherwise be private. New paying customers for a product that they say is personalized, but for the most part seems to be driven by computer algorithms overseen by a real-life person, and maintain the illusion that all of this is for some greater scientific purpose. This is yet another example of caveat emptor, or buyer beware. The real downside, though, is that it's working. TriDot has been incredibly successful, though based on what I can tell, their athletes are more passionate about proselytizing about TriDot than actually competitive when racing. And much of this success is likely because of this misleading annual promotion that, given its success, is surely going to continue. It kind of makes me sad that no one is doing actual research in this field, research that would benefit not just the company doing it, but the participants involved. On the show today, I'm going to address one of the lofty questions that I have been asked on more than one occasion in the past. This question came to me via the new TriDoc Podcast Facebook group that I started a couple of weeks ago and that I'd encourage all of you to consider joining. It's a private group where you can discuss subjects heard on the program with other listeners and ask questions of each other and of me. Proving this point is the fact that one listener asked what benefits have been shown to be associated with training at altitude. And so today, I'm going to look at the science and try to bring you an answer. 
Later, I'm joined by professional triathlete Sky Munch. Sky appeared on a bonus episode for my Patreon subscribers not too long ago, and today is the day that her full interview can be heard by everyone. She has had an interesting backstory, and along with her successes, there have been some significant obstacles to overcome as well, and she's done it all with her trademark smile. And that's going to be coming up just a little bit later. Before that, I want to take an opportunity to remind you all of the many bonus interviews, just like Sky's, that you can hear if you become a Patreon supporter of this podcast. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, Patreon supporters of this podcast can hear my interviews with Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and others, all in a private feed delivered directly to your listening device of choice. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you too can get access. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks in advance just for considering. I have been living in the Mile High City of Denver for just about two decades now, but I still remember how it felt when I first moved here. I was very much a newbie in triathlon at that time, but I was still training as much as I could, and in so doing, I learned quickly that training in Denver was not at all the same as it had been in my hometown of Montreal from where I had just moved. One of the first things that I had to learn to deal with was the lack of humidity. While this was very much kind of a welcome change compared to some of the awful days that I dealt with back on the East Coast, I had to quickly learn to drastically increase my fluid intake in Colorado to make up for the rapid, insensible losses that come with breathing and sweating in such a dry environment. Of course, the lack of humidity is very much a product of the other major issue that affected my ability to train here, and that is, of course, the altitude. At 1,600 meters, or 5,280 feet above sea level, Denver's altitude raises two other important issues besides the lack of humidity that impact athletes as they train and race. First, there is the fact that you're much closer to the sun, and therefore exposed to a higher amount of solar radiation. And second, because we're high up, the atmosphere is thinner, and so the amount of oxygen available to breathe is significantly less, and this can have an outsized impact on exercise performance and tolerance for the uninitiated. Now, it isn't uncommon for visitors here to complain of feeling short of breath when going up a flight of stairs, for example, and I certainly noticed that when I first got here. But more than that, what I really saw was a big spike in my heart rate, running at the same pace as I had back east, and more than that, significant shortness of breath when swimming. In fact, and I tell everyone this when they consider coming here to train or race, swimming is really where you tend to feel the altitude the most, much more, I think, than on the bike or running. Over time, though, I got used to the altitude and things returned to a new baseline, but I found myself wondering, as many have before and since, whether or not this adaptation would prove beneficial when I did races at lower altitudes. And this is one of the more common questions that I get asked, and it was brought up recently in the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group that I would encourage you all to consider joining if you're interested in discussing these kinds of subjects and asking questions to be discussed on the show in the future. At any rate, listeners in the group wondered what kinds of benefit living and training at altitude has for athletes like me, and whether or not there is any benefit to using any of the numbers of devices that have been designed to simulate a high-altitude environment in a home that's actually closer to sea level. 
Well, before I get to the possible benefits that training and living at altitude might confer to an athlete, let's first spend a short time discussing why altitude makes it hard to exercise for those who come from sea level and discuss the physiologic adaptations that occur that allow for adaptation over time that are suggested to then also give a performance advantage when an athlete descends to perform at a lower altitude. The core issue at play as altitude increases is the ever-decreasing atmospheric pressure. Atmospheric pressure is about 80% of what it is at sea level when you get to Denver's altitude, which is a mile above. If you go further to ski at Breckenridge, for example, or Vail, it drops another 10 to 15%. Now, because the concentration of oxygen within the atmosphere is only about 21%, the amount of oxygen drops in a similar fashion. Now, oxygen, of course, is a vital element needed for the burning of fuels within our cells in order to provide us with energy. As inspired oxygen levels fall, so too will the amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin in our red blood cells that is then transported to our working cells, like muscle, and then cellular metabolism and therefore exercise performance can be limited by this shortfall. Initially, when a person moves to altitude, a few adaptations are made in order to try and compensate for the lower atmospheric pressure and oxygen concentration. Heart and respiratory rate increase, as does respiratory volume, but these measures have limited efficacy to overcome the drop in available oxygen, especially the higher you go. Still, for people coming to Denver, where the drop is not that significant, this is more than adequate. Over time, additional, more long-lasting changes will occur in order to make a person better able to tolerate the lower oxygen availability. First and foremost, a chemical called 2,3-DPG increases in the bloodstream. Now, this chemical increases the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen, meaning that more of it can be taken up in the lungs where levels are lower than they would be at sea level. And this occurs pretty quickly, on the order of a few days to a week. Something that takes a little bit longer, though, is the production of more red blood cells. And the increase in red blood cell mass with an associated higher hemoglobin level takes on the order of several weeks to months. And the result of this is that there's a higher oxygen-carrying capacity that offsets, to a degree, the lower environmental oxygen content. And it's really this last part, the increased red cell mass, that has long been suggested to confer benefits to athletes when they then descend to lower altitudes, though there are other physiologic adaptations at the cellular level that could also theoretically help with oxygen metabolism as well. So that's the physiology. Now we need to look at what the science says. Does the science actually bear out that these physiologic adaptations take place, first of all? And second of all, do these adaptations actually confer any kind of benefits? Well, first, let's look at the research on how altitude affects performance for those who live at lower levels. In other words, how are people affected when they go from sea level to higher altitudes? A review article from 2013 by Chapman made the point that there is in fact a lot of variability among individuals in their, in terms of their ability to perform well at altitude and that there's no really good way of predicting who's going to be able and who's going to struggle. In addition, it's pretty hard to say at what level of altitude people start to experience difficulty, though a group of studies have suggested that it might be as low as 900 meters, and that for all athletes, VO2 max can be seen to decrease in a linear fashion as altitude increases. Now, I point that 900 meters out because, as a point of reference, St. George, Utah, the site of the upcoming Ironman World Championship in a few short weeks, is 872 meters above sea level, very close to that 900 meter mark. 
I point this out because most triathletes don't necessarily associate St. George as being at a particularly high altitude, but the science suggests that for some, it might be. Another study by an author named Lobigs in 2017 looked at how much red cell mass can be expected to increase in response to altitude. These authors point out that there are two main strategies for altitude training, and you may have heard of them before. One of them is live high and train low, while the other one is to live high and train high. Now, the latter is something that can be done for a minimum of four weeks at altitudes of 2,000 to 2,500 meters, while the former is what athletes who use artificial altitude environments like altitude tents try to take advantage of. To do this, the the latter one, or sorry, the former one with altitude tents, you need to maintain yourself in the high altitude environment of greater than 3,000 meters for 12 to 16 hours per day. Now, whichever route one takes, hemoglobin levels have in fact been shown to increase by an average of about 1.9 grams per deciliter, and that is not an insignificant amount. The authors of this study go so far as to warn that this could actually result in an adverse finding for athletes who maintain a blood passport if the altitude effect is not taken into consideration. Interestingly, a different study by an author by the name of Numella in 2020 found similar results, indicating that hemoglobin does indeed increase in athletes who go to altitude, but in this paper, the findings were a little bit more unpredictable. Specifically, in this more recent study, there was much more inter-athlete variability of the response of the bone marrow, with men showing a larger increase, and many athletes of both sexes actually showing no change in their hemoglobin at all. There were a lot of potential issues identified as to what as to why this may have been the case, such as low iron levels in the female participants, but even then, there was a certain degree of variability that the authors simply could not explain. Still, it's fair to say that the increase in hemoglobin in response to living at altitude is a real effect for most, if not all, who undertake it. So the science supports the predicted physiologic adaptations. Now, do those adaptations result in real-world benefits? A study by Constantini in 2017 raised some pretty serious doubts on this matter. For one thing, these authors noted that when athletes train at altitude, they're kind of limited in their ability to go at higher intensity and for prolonged effort, which goes along with the initial study that suggests that when athletes go to altitude, they have issues in being able to train their hardest. The best way to get the benefits is to actually integrate low-altitude training sessions in with the high-altitude training sessions, but this isn't always practical. Constantini and the other authors also point out that the use of altitude tents and other such devices rarely provide the altitude stimulus needed to get the adaptive benefits, since no one's really able to stay in them for 16 hours a day. And if they did, then they wouldn't really be training enough to perform as well as they wanted. Now, this being said, the authors did propose some locations where high-altitude living and training could be done with possible success, including places like Lake Tahoe, Flagstaff, and Park City. Other authors like Bader and Bastrap were the next ones to look at this question in 2018, and they too had difficulty finding a significant performance benefit for athletes who live high and train low. They they pointed to two randomized controlled clinical trials of living high and training low that showed no performance benefit for athletes and two additional studies of triathletes and cyclists using altitude tents that similarly demonstrated no performance improvements, specifically in cycling power. 
The authors here concluded, as have many others, that there is simply no compelling proof that altitude really helps that much with performance. They did, however, point out that there doesn't seem to be any harm in the practice and went out of their way to say that although they couldn't find any benefit in the absence of harm, they don't necessarily discourage doing it. Finally, a paper from Bonetti and Hopkins in 2009 reviewed the evidence on how the effects of altitude may benefit athletes who return to lower levels to compete. By pooling results, this study did suggest a 3-7% to performance benefit for sub-elite athletes who lived high and trained low prior to comp- competitions at sea level. Now, natural environments were superior to artificial ones, including altitude tents and the like, and for elite athletes, the results were smaller, and the altitude protocol used seemed to matter less. I think if I was going to sum up the current state of understanding on this subject, it would be as follows. There are definite and clear physiologic adaptations to altitude that could theoretically result in improved performance for those who live at higher altitudes and then compete at sea level. The magnitude of that improvement, however, seems to be quite small and not at all consistent, suggesting that it may not really be particularly important. Artificial altitude devices, such as sleep tents, look like they're pretty much insufficient and impractical for this purpose, and likely don't result in any of the benefits, as they can't be used for enough time per day to really get the effects that they're intended. Athletes who live low and compete high can definitely expect to see some decrement in performance, potentially beginning as low as 900 meters, but likely won't see a big issue until they get to around 1,200 meters above sea level. So that's the science. Now, let me add some additional anecdotal evidence to all of this, taking it for what it's worth given that I'm going to provide you with evidence from an N of exactly one myself. As I said earlier, Denver is at 1,600 meters, so not quite the 2,000 meters where one would expect to see some, you know, significant effects. Still, after living here for several months, I did notice that my body had adapted, and I was able to perform similarly to how I had before moving here. When I would descend for competitions, I can't say that I was particularly faster, but there were definite effects related to the different environments. For one, because the air is thinner at altitude, I could be faster on the bike for the same power output because there's less wind resistance. So racing at altitude actually is a benefit for me because of the better aerodynamics. Going lower actually slows me down on the bike, even if I was gaining any aerobic benefit because of the higher hemoglobin. Second, higher humidity is a really significant issue, as the low humidity where I train makes warm weather efforts much easier here than they are in places where the humidity is high. Finally, though I don't necessarily run faster at lower altitude, I definitely run with a slightly lower heart rate for the same running speed that I run with in Denver. And while this may or may not give me an advantage, it certainly allows me to perform at a higher level for longer. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me by email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or join the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page and, sorry, Facebook group and drop it in there. I'll be sure to let you know if I take it up for researching and you can look forward to hearing it on the podcast in an upcoming time. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. 
Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Sky Monch is a professional triathlete currently ranked seventh in the Professional Triathletes Organization World Rankings and holds the record for the fastest American female Ironman time. Sky, however, did not grow up as an elite athlete, and her professional triathlon journey only started after she first completed her education at Brigham Young University, where she earned her bachelor's degree in accounting and master's degree in tax accounting, something that I know many other triathletes on the professional circuit have done as well. In 2015, Sky then went part-time from her job, where she was working at the time at Ernst & Young, uh, hired a coach, and qualified to race professionally that same year. Her first professional wins and major setbacks came in 2019 when she won the Ironman European Championship in Frankfurt in June, but later that fall suffered a terrible bike crash just a few weeks before she was supposed to be competing at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. Sky worked relentlessly on her recovery and was well on her way when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, but was able to make a race comeback at the end of 2020 and enjoyed a full and successful race season in 2021. She lives in Salt Lake City with her husband and her dog. Sky is passionate about inspiring others to dream big, live a healthy lifestyle, and to believe in themselves. And she has agreed to do all of those things in joining me here today on the TriDog Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here, Sky. I'm really excited to speak with you. Yeah, thank you for having me and thanks for the full intro. Well, I want to begin with hearing about how you came to triathlon, because uh, clearly not the route that most people take. Yeah. Um, How did I get into triathlon? Well, I fell in love with distance running as a teenager. I ran my first marathon when I was 16. So I was fully hooked on the endorphins very, very young. And in high school, I learned about triathlon and I wrote like my senior paper or something about trying a triathlon like the title was trying a try and I interviewed a local triathlete um so that's kind of my introduction to triathlon but it wouldn't be until 2009 um I think I was my third year at university and that's when I did my first triathlon a friend of mine you know knew I was interested in doing it and encouraged me and he let me borrow his bike and I just did this little tiny local race, reverse mini sprint, like super, super basic beginner try, which is how we all start anyway, I think. Um, And that just kind of lit the fire that I really enjoyed it. And I did well enough to think like, oh, maybe I can be good at this. And I just kind of dabbled in the local scene, um, you know, while I was in school and I guess for the next five years until I decided I wanted to go pro. Um, and I basically just made the decision to go pro. Anyway, you might be asking me more about well, that. <laughs> well, I'm I'm interested. I ask everybody this because as somebody who came to the sport quite late yeah. and had to literally learn how to swim, what, yeah. what was your swimming background? My swimming background was I did swim lessons and I was very comfortable in the water. Like I knew how to swim, but I did not do swim team. I was not a you know, technical uh, swimmer. So I, yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I've had to work really hard 
trying to, you know, keep up on the swim. Yeah, but you see, I work really hard and I'm not I like, know. you know, <laughs> yeah, I've talked to several people. I've talked to several people, uh, both professional and very high achieving age groupers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, for, for those of us who get into triathlon as adults and learn how to swim as adults, it's the most frustrating thing. And yes. there are just some people who take to it and are able to just do amazing things in the water. And mm-hmm. then there's me. Who, <laughs> who it's cannot? <laughs> it's really, really hard. I mean, I constantly feel like I'm, I'm actually amazed I can swim as fast as I do, to be honest. That's kind of where I'm at now. I'm like, I'm actually amazed I can swim at all, you know, based on, you know, I'll look at videos of myself swimming and it's like, what am I doing? <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I mean, clearly I, I think, um, I spoke with, um, uh, a guy by the name of Chris Freeman is a very high achieving uh, age grouper, a former mm-hmm. Olympian uh, in cross country skiing. Oh, wow. And uh, we talked and he, he too, he came to triathlon as a non-swimmer essentially. And, you know, I mean, clearly there's something to the fact that if you're a great athlete, you've got this great aerobic engine, you mm-hmm. can make up for poor technique. And yes. I think that, you know, as somebody who has probably not the best technique, my, speaking of myself, um, and, you know, an, an average age grouper, well, okay, to be fair, an above average age grouper, uh, you know, fitness, mm-hmm. I, I can only do so much to make up for my poor yeah. technique, but you guys obviously have a leg up on the rest of us. Yeah. And I like what, what you said, um, you know, if you're fit, you can kind of get away with maybe poor technique because you just make up for it by being so fit. But yeah, yeah, you certainly hit a limit with that. And, um, yeah, I I hit a limit with that as well. So yeah, techniques tough, but very important. (laughs) So you said you were in it for like five years before you made the decision. And I, and I was looking, uh, at your results as an age grouper. And I mean, you started as an age grouper at the 70.3 distance in 2014. And by 2015, you're winning. Uh, At what point did you kind of like come to this realization that, Hey, I'm good at this. I'm, you know, I can make a go of this as potentially a professional. Well, to be honest, I didn't, I decided that really before I did a lot of triathlon in my mind, like I did a few local races, (laughs) right? Like I did two local half Ironmans and like maybe five or six local sprints. Uh, I hadn't even done an Olympic yet. Um, You know, I did like a couple a year, those five years. And I decided before I even did an Ironman branded event or before I even fully understood professional triathlon was a thing. Like I just decided I was going to be a pro like everything. The decision was all made at once. I was going to go part-time at my job. I was going to get a coach and I was going to race pro, but I, of course I had to earn my pro license. Right. But but okay. So I look, you know, you can obviously you were right. But I mean, could you look back at that and see a different outcome where that suggested a a level of hubris that, you know, I mean, like, how did you know? Like, so, so let me, let me, let me sort of turn this to it. So there, I work with a a woman, uh, incredible, incredible woman, someone I look up to, uh, her name is Juliette Hawkman. She is also a former Olympian. She rode for the United States back in 1988. And she tells this amazing story about how, 
you know, she willed herself onto that team. I mean, yeah. she worked her butt off. She worked mm-hmm. so hard, but it was her dream. She was going to mm-hmm. do it and she made it happen. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I often say to her things like, well, you can say that, but I could have said that and it wouldn't have happened. Now, yeah. you obviously either knew something about yourself mm-hmm. or I, I'm just curious, like yes. what gave you the confidence? Yes. No. And that is what told me I could do it was my confidence, right? I just like had this unshakable confidence in myself and self-belief that I could accomplish something if I set my mind to it, even though I didn't know exactly what it was going to take. Like I thought I knew what it would take. I thought if I just got a coach and trained more and focused more, you know, I would be good enough. And it turns out I was right in some sense that I, I did earn my pro license. Um, but just that act alone did not make me a world-class athlete, but it did earn me a pro license. Um, but yeah, it, it was my confidence in myself. And I guess, I guess there's just experiences in life where, you know, like your gut or whatever you want to call it, something inside of you is telling you you should do something and you can do something and you can choose to listen to it or you can ignore it. Right. And I, I certainly had those experiences and like, this is totally cheesy, but watching like the NBC Kona broadcasts, um, like Chrissy Wellington era, watching those women race. I remember watching it and just thinking like, I think, I think I could be one of those. I think I could do that. And so it stuck with me, you know, and, and then it kind of like stuck with me slash ate away at me while I was sitting at my desk for the next couple of years or whatever, until I finally decided, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do this because I'm the only person who can make this decision. I'm the only person who knows what I'm capable of and, um, you know, now or never. So I, I, I admire it so much, Sky. I got to tell you, I, you know, I talked to, I know you recently talked with Vanessa Faye Forster. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah We're she talking was on again my, tomorrow. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, she was yeah. on my podcast recently and we had a similar conversation where yeah, she that. told me how, you know, she was a, middle, I mean, more than middle of the package. I mean, she was an above average age grouper, but she just decided I'm going to, you know, win my age group. And I said to her, I said, like, where does that come from? Because I, I, I for years told, you know, believe that it wasn't in the cards. And then I eventually started getting results that made me believe that Mm -hmm. I had to get results to be confident. And Mm -hmm. you and my friend Juliet and Vanessa were completely the opposite. You just believed it without the results. And I, I admire that. I don't, I, it's a, it's a, you know, it, there's something in your constitution or your makeup. And, and um, I, I think it's in, in incredibly impressive and really, really interesting. Yeah. It's definitely like a blanket thing for me. I absolutely believe, you know, I'm not going to be a triathlete, professional triathlete the rest of my life. And I know whatever I set my mind to next, like you bet I'm going to do an amazing job at that too. You know, I, I I just really firmly believe if any of us are capable of doing whatever we set our minds to, um, and that doesn't mean we know how to do it or we know all all the answers, but we can find ways and yeah, self-belief is just incredible. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But again, I come back to this notion and this is where, and I'm not... (sighs) Like I'm not questioning or, or, but I yeah, do yeah. like, you know, like I, I can't say I'm going to be an Olympian. Like I couldn't have at yeah. any point in my life, you know? So I, it, it's, it's just kind of interesting to me. I don't know. Like, I wonder how many other people in 1988 or even for you in 2005 made this decision that, you know what, I'm going to be a professional triathlete. And I wonder how many of them didn't get there. You know, uh, like I'm talking to you because mm-hmm. you did. 
well, uh, you know. It took action because I, I had the realization. I had the realization sitting at my desk. I'm like, okay, the reality is I can stay here at my job. I was at Ernst & Young, this well-known firm. I had a great job, great future ahead. I could climb the corporate ladder. No one would ever look at me and say I didn't live an ambitious life. You know, I had a master's degree, a CPA license, yeah. like the package deal. Um, and I could have stayed at that job and life would have been fine. And I wouldn't obviously have been as satisfied because I was dissatisfied, but I could have stayed there. And that's kind of just status quo, right? Or I can choose to make a big change, a scary change, kind of risky, but you know, very calculated risk for me. Um, in terms of like the financial side and just see where it took me. And at least then I would know that I tried. Um, yeah. So and, it, and, and, and the nice to, thing is, the nice thing is you always had the fallback. Yes. So yeah. it's one thing, like a lot of us probably have these thoughts, but it takes action. And that's yeah. when I realized, literally it was when I realized I'm the only one who can get up and go talk to my boss and say, Hey, can I go part time? Because I need to pursue this professional triathlon thing. He thought I was insane. Like he was like, okay, like, okay, I support you. He was very supportive, but you could tell he was just like, why would you want to do that? Um, but yeah, it was up to me. And so the key is not having the feelings or the thoughts. The key is like taking the action to make it, you know, Mm. happen, but it's scary. (laughs) Yeah, it's scary. So I want to follow up on that. I mean, what were the hardest parts? I mean, what was the hardest parts of taking that leap of faith and just leaving behind that secure job and you know, everything else? Well, I kind of took like baby steps, you know? So I went, I went part-time first, um, at Ernst and Young. So I was part-time for almost a year. Honestly, the scariest part was just deciding I was going to do it and then taking the action, like reaching out to a coach and then walking. Literally, I remember getting up from my desk. It was like one, two, three, go. Get up from my desk, walk down the hall to my boss's office, sit down and just like pour my guts out about how I needed to go part time. That was honestly the scariest part is just realizing I'm actually going to do this now and here are the things I need to do to make it happen. Cause of course I'd already like spreadsheeted my finances. I'm like, how much do I need to make? Like I, I knew all the answers. So I just had to go and make it happen. So yeah, it wasn't like, that scary. Once, once I got up from my desk and talked to my boss, once I talked to my boss, I was like, okay, done. It's happening. Besides the spreadsheet. Yeah. Do you think your time in the corporate world helped you uh in that transition and and even now as a pro yeah I do and it's funny I thought about it this last year um I didn't have like the smoothest end of year um kind of starting in August you know some things are more public than others but like I got I was stuck in Slovakia with COVID even though I had no symptoms and and then like my my grandpa passed away which is pretty significant like there were a lot of things going on that I were out of my control that were not ideal for maybe an athlete to deal with. Um, but I still like executed great races during that time. And I, in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, you know, the reality is like, there wasn't any other option in my mind, but to like keep going and to keep executing races, how I always do. And similarly in the corporate world, like I was dealing with tax deadlines multiple times a year. Like there was no option to go home at 7 p.m. Like I stayed until the job was done. And sometimes that was 5 a.m. You know what I mean? So like, I think in that regard, I don't know. I I came into 
the corporate world already having a really good work ethic. I worked a ton in high school and college, but yeah, you just realize like there's a job to be done and you have to do it. And that's what you're hired to do. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you don't feel great or if you want to go home and you'd rather be watching TV or whatever it is. So, yeah. 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 Huh. And I mean, do you do your own taxes? <laughs> yeah, I do. Of course I do. <laughs> I just never know if you if you still keep up to date with all that stuff. Yeah, right? well, you got enough going on. There is a lot of change. Um, I'm not super up to date on all the latest like tax code changes. Some of the big ones I am, but yeah, this year, think, this last I, year I, I have not. <laughs> I just imagine, you know, most people, you know, put their recovery boots on and they, they put their feet up on the couch and they, they'll watch, you know, the latest season of Ozark and, and there you are thumbing through the latest changes to the tax no. code. <laughs> no, I don't care at all actually about any of those changes. Um, I don't know. Sometimes there's some interesting ones, but yeah, <laughs> I don't actively seek them. Right. Um, I, I want to talk a lot about 2019 because that clearly was a seminal year for you yeah. in your development as a pro. But before that, I want to go back a little bit further because uh, you and I are somewhat kindred spirits in that we oh, yeah. are both dual citizens, yes. uh, Canadian and U.S. Uh, and I know that uh, your uh, history, uh, your, your youth, especially in Canada, was a little more difficult, uh, but likely formative in making you the person yeah. who you are. Uh, yeah. You've been open about it. I, I've read interviews where you've spoken about this. So I wanted yep. uh, my listeners to hear a little bit about um, some of the stuff that you went through growing up. I know that uh, your, your parents divorced and that there was issues of domestic abuse in that relationship. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how difficult that was and, and how you think it might have made you the person you are? Yeah, I mean, it was difficult, but at the same time, it was like my normal reality, you know? So I didn't know any different. Um, which doesn't make it a good thing, but it was the circumstance I was in and I, you know, we made the best of it. And I certainly had a lot of supportive family, um, my grandparents and things like that, that really made my childhood amazing. Um, but in terms of how it like made me who I am, um, I don't know, I guess it, it was like a pretty big dose of reality. Not that it's everyone's reality, but it was a pretty big dose of like, okay, life's not perfect. Life's actually really, really hard sometimes. And sometimes the people that are supposed to take care of you and they're supposed to make you feel safe or like make you feel whatever important and cared for, that doesn't happen. Um, and so I guess I think, I think I became very confident in myself and, uh, very independent, like, I don't know, almost like emotionally independent, you know, and maybe, maybe also it made other things not as big of a deal. Like it's just a reality thing. Like I always say with triathlon, I'm not fussed if a workout doesn't go how I want it to go. It's just triathlon. Like it's just a bike workout. Like there's so many bigger problems that we could all have in our lives. And I'm sure we all know that, but, um, I think it just gave me a really good perspective. Um, but also, you know, like life wasn't handed to me on a silver platter. Most of us don't have it handed to us on a silver platter and I had to work really hard and that work ethic and everything is what really gave me the confidence in myself to, you know, chase this triathlon dream. Um, so 
yeah, there's a lot of positives gained from it. So. I love, um, you know, something you said there that really struck struck me, and that's that, you know, it was your reality, and you didn't really recognize it as being abnormal because that's what you knew. Um, yeah. At what point? At what point did you recognize that that's not everybody's normal? Um, I kind of feel like when things got really bad, there were some pretty major incidences that were in the news. And that was really embarrassing for me as a, you know, young teenager. And I think, I mean, I think I always knew it wasn't normal, right? But when it's just kind of happening here and there and, you know, maybe your friends don't know about it, it's no big deal. But then like when it, when it felt like it became more public, then that was embarrassing as a teenager. And um, I think that's when I knew like this isn't normal and – it was also when things really started to change though. Like it was over. My parents' marriage was over. We were moving. We were essentially fleeing the country. Um, that's when I knew, yeah, things weren't real or weren't normal and that things were going to change now because it's not okay. Like we're not going to live like that anymore. So Yeah. And I want to be, I want to be very clear and just call it out because uh, as I told Sky before we talked today, I first of all got her permission to ask her about this. Yeah. But I also told her that, you know, I'm an emergency physician. I see this far too often. Um, it's something that I always feel impotent um, in mm-hmm. terms of having an ability to to intervene. But we're talking about spousal abuse and we're talking about um, Sky's father who uh, was abusive to uh, her mom and uh, in, in a way that went on for a long time. And uh, fortunately, your mom was able to get out finally. And, and we know that all too often that's not the case and that it can. Yeah. I mean, in, she barely got know. out. It feels like so. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and all too often it ends in, ends yeah. in a, a far worse way. So yeah. um, do you, um, I, I know that you're an advocate for a lot of causes. Is that one that, that you advocate for at all? Or do you still keep that pretty close to the vest? Um, it's interesting you mentioned that because obviously it was a huge part of my life growing up and now, now being older, you know, once my parents divorced, like it was out of my life. Uh, my mom remarried, my stepdad was like, there was no abuse, physical abuse in the home anymore. You know what I mean? Like it was just out of my life. It was not a way to deal with anything. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of like I just left it in the past, um, kind of like, oh, that's over. But, you know, as I get older, I do think like, what what are areas I really deeply care about and where I can make an impact? Um, and obviously, I th- there's so many causes and I do deeply care about the domestic violence thing. Um, it's very complicated, you know, like there's so much of the emotional and psychological side to it. It's almost like it's really dangerous and scary for women to get out of it and yeah yeah i don't like outwardly advocate for it but i absolutely like if anyone was like hey i need somewhere safe to stay i'd be like oh my gosh come stay with me you know yeah yeah no i understand And, and and i um my wife and I had the opportunity to watch the Netflix, Netflix, the Netflix series made. I don't know if you've seen oh, it or heard no, about I've it. No, I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah, and and it uh, it it just uh, speaking with some of the social workers I work with and mm. some people who work in that uh, sphere, they've spoken very highly about its realistic portrayal of uh, domestic violence and uh, and um, how 
some of the things that you mentioned about how women can fall into that um, sort of cycle. Uh, so uh, it's really if hard you're to interested, yeah, really hard to get out of. And it's a really interesting program. And so if, if you have an interest, I'm, I'm speaking specifically to my listeners, if you have an interest in learning more about that uh, kind of thing, Made is a really, really um, hard to watch, but but really well done uh, series on that uh, subject. Yeah, uh, well, turning back, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I'll see news stories about cases, crazy domestic abuse cases. And I always like, my mom and I always talk about them, you know, yeah. just because it's like, wow, it's just sad. Um, anyway, yeah. Well, crazy. I mean, uh, it's really yeah. encouraging that you came through that and seemed to be almost unfazed. And, uh, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it really, like you said, you left it in the past. And that's that's mm-hmm. pretty remarkable. So that's yeah, it's, it's funny not to keep talking on about this. But, like, I remember as a young girl, you know, um, I remember being afraid that I would marry someone who would be like that. Like that was my biggest fear. And like, I didn't want to grow up and marry someone who would do that to me. And fortunately I married someone who is not like that at all. He's the nicest, mm-hmm. but it's just funny. Like that kind of faded as I got older, as I got farther away from it, I, there was less fear about it, but yeah, it, it used to like take a lot of, you know, space in my mind, like the fear of what someone close to you can do. So, yeah. 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 Well, returning to happier things, I want to talk about 2019 because uh, in looking back through your results as a pro, uh, you went pro in, I guess, 2016 was your first professional season. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had great results almost right away. You were always, you know, top 10. Uh, You know, you had some top five results, but uh, podium results came really in 2018. And then in 2019, you had your first professional win at a really big race. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, what does that feel like? Um. It doesn't really feel real, especially because like I went into that race, you have to go into every race thinking you can win it, but, um, I wasn't necessarily the favorite by any means going into that race. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool. It's really, really cool to win a race. Um, it's an incredible feeling and it's rare, right? Like most people don't win every race they do. Some do, um, (laughs) but for a lot of us, it's rare. So it's really special. And I think what that mostly did for me, though, is like gave me the confidence. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm at a level where I really need to believe that any start line I go to, I'm a competitor for the win. So. Hmm. And uh, you, you followed that up with wins at 70.3 in Boulder and yeah. <laughs> uh, had several other wins. And then, of course, Chattanooga. Uh, where you really blew the doors off with yeah. eight thirty four. <laughs> oh man, that race was amazing. Like I just felt so good. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, I've had days where things all come together and you feel good from start to finish. But uh, I mean, obviously, different level. Um, I, I mean, at what point do you know during that race that you just like in total control and you just got you know it's just your day? Yeah. I mean. Going into that race, I kind of felt like it was my race to lose just because I knew I was in really good form. And, you know, the field wasn't insane. I mean, no disrespect to my competitors, but I'm like, okay, I know I'm in really good form. Like, don't mess this up, basically, is what I (laughs) was thinking. And I knew I was in, like, pretty good control. Halfway through the bike, someone told me I had 10 minutes on the next person. And I was like, whoa, 10 minutes in the first half of the bike, like, that's pretty good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I never, for I never once was like, Oh, I've got this. I don't even have to try hard, but 
yeah, once I got that 10 minute split on the bike, I'm like, okay, keep pushing. But like, this is awesome. We have an awesome lead. And then, um, yeah, on the run, I just kept, you know, hearing how far back or how far ahead, I guess I was. So it was fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Fun. (laughs) It was fun. It was fun because it, it, it more became about like me keeping the pressure on myself to just push because I, I had such a big gap. Like it would have had to be catastrophic for me to lose it by probably halfway through the marathon, you know, like something really, really bad would have had to happen. I, I mean, I probably could have walked several times and still, you know, been yeah. fine, but, um, yeah, it was We're fun. We're going to go there. Yeah. I enjoyed it. And then, yeah. and then, uh, you've, you've had great results since then, uh, Florida this past, uh, oh, yeah. November, you were, yeah. you looked like you were doing well in control the whole way. And then Heather ran you down. Yes. Yeah, uh, was that, was that one where she just was, you know, lights out on the run or was that one where you struggled well, a bit? No. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, we started the run together. We ran the whole first loop together. So we ran 13 miles basically side by side and, I wasn't feeling amazing by the end of the second loop. And I don't like giving, ex- these are not excuses, just simply what happened. Right, no, I was not I feeling it. amazing. And I actually, she was pulling away a little bit and I, I needed to use the toilet. So I stopped, I'm like, I just have to do this. <laughs> I stopped and used the toilet, immediately felt a lot better. Um, but by that point, she had a, she, I mean, she ran faster than me. Um, she had a great run and I did not catch her, but it was a really fun race. I mean, it was fun to run that whole first half together with her. I've never had that before. The swim was, the swim was. Oh, the swim was ridiculous. It was insane. Yeah. It was so incredibly choppy and the buoys were all over the place. And, um, anyway, yeah, it was not, it was not the ideal swim for a swimmer like me. Um, (laughs) or for anyone really. I mean, obviously everyone swam much slower than they would have in a nice, you know, calm, whatever. So yeah. And it was freezing actually that morning was freezing. Um, the coldest I've ever been before a race, literally I was shivering uncontrollably. We had to go sit in the truck. Uh, fortunately we drove there instead of like walking from our accommodation. And, um, yeah, if I couldn't go get in the truck and warm up, I'm not sure I would have ever warmed up. The ocean actually felt warm. Wow. Yeah. Because, and it wasn't like particularly warm. Uh, we were in wetsuits, so it, yeah. it wasn't that warm. Um, it was just yeah. that much warmer than the air. Oh, it was crazy. I couldn't yeah. believe how cold it was. Yeah. Uh, so let's just finish on uh, the other uh, event in 2019 that oh, really yeah. was formative for you. And that's, of yeah. course, your bike crash. So tell yeah. us about what, what, what happened. I mean, you're, you're, tra- you're you know, tuning up for Kona and yes. uh, it was just weeks before. Where, where yes. were you? What, what happened? I was at home. I was at home um, right towards the end of a four-hour ride. Literally, I would have been home within like 20 minutes um, from where I was. I was up a canyon that's just right by my house here and um, got to the top. My training partner started descending. I put arm warmers on, see at the bottom, and not even a 1,000 meters down, I crashed bad. And I don't know exactly what happened, um, but it I hit my head hard and hit – a few bones pretty hard enough to shatter them. So, uh, yeah. And a nice man picked me up and I don't remember anything. I hardly remember anything with the man who picked me up, you know, riding in his truck down the Canyon, all these things. 
Um, but yeah, I ended up in the ICU overnight and I broke my, I shattered my lecranon, my elbow, uh, broke my collarbone and then I blew out my trapezium, which is a thumb bone. So it's funny you ask, I was just looking at videos on my phone because a friend of ours just broke her lecranon. So I need to message her and be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Cause that is a rough bone to break. That is not comfortable. That no, is not comfortable. the recovery yeah. was really tough too. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, mentally I imagine very difficult, not just because knocked you out of Kona, but also, um, just coming back from that. I mean, I mean, it's funny cause people think like, Oh, mentally how that must've been so hard. And like, I was devastated to not go to Kona. I was so sad, but as soon as I was like, okay, I'm not going to Kona Kona's off the table. It took me a while to realize that it took like a few minutes in the ER with my husband being like, no sky, like, no, there's no way you're not going to Kona. <laughs> um, Cause of course I thought like, Oh, it's just my collarbone. They can just put some screws in it. We'll be fine. Um, once I realized Kona was off the table, I was just like, all right, I just have to get better and I'll be back racing as soon as possible. And so mentally it was difficult but I was just so focused on recovering and there were so many milestones with my recovery because I had so many broken parts like there were so many things to focus on so many doctor's appointments so many PT appointments so many degrees to like straighten out my elbow there was just there was a lot of work to do and um, it was a lot of work it was painful Um, of course I would have rather not had to do all that but Mentally, it was just like, okay, this is my job now, and I can't wait to recover. And with bones, like, bones are going to recover. And I'm not the same as I was before, um, like, from a physical, mechanical perspective. Like, I can still feel things, see things. My elbow is not straight, but I, it's not holding me back, so... Yeah, that's what's important, right? Yeah. I don't get the sense there's much that holds you back, Sky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I am human. So, <laughs> but I try, well, I try to overcome for sure. Well, I, um, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a really exceptional uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, covering as much as we did. Yes. And uh, yeah, I would uh, love to see you uh, back at it and uh, hopefully racing. Uh, you're racing in St. George in May. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm super excited to do the Ironman there. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to cheering you on there and uh, at the rest of the races you have this year. Sky Munch, uh, professional triathlete, uh, extraordinaire, dual citizen, Canadian American. Thank <laughs> you again for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The TriDog Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. You can also submit questions for consideration on the private Facebook group, the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. Facebook group. You can apply to uh, be uh, entered into that group on Facebook. I will uh, grant your uh, approval, and then you can uh, participate in conversations or submit questions there at any time. 
If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast, where right now you can find a bonus interview with Sky Munch. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.